Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Please pray with me. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, you have said, seek my face. Your face, Lord, do we seek. Hide not your face from us. Lord, lift up the light of your countenance upon us and we shall be saved. Amen. You can be seated. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, and I reasoned like a child that there was one color called white. Clouds, eggs, milk, cotton, it was both sufficient and accurate to call these white. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways and I painted a wall. And if you've ever painted a wall, you are now familiar with the staggering varieties of white. You have your eggshells and your off-whites, of course, but that's just the beginning. As it turns out, clouds are not just white, they are cloud flare white. Milk is apparently buttercream or Swiss coffee white. And this is but the tip of the iceberg white. There is crushed silk, harvest moon, dove's neck, chantilly lace, Buckingham snow. And I only made some of those up. There are countless varieties of white, minute variations of shades and tints and tones and saturations, which do actually, as it turns out, drastically affect the vibe of a room. There's a meaningful difference between doctor's office white and the white of a stuccoed wall in a Mediterranean cafe. And it's because the so-called color white receives and reflects light in all its various ways. There are endless varieties of white because there are endless varieties of light. The course of a common day has its regular varieties of light. There's the promising blush of dawn, the blank heat of high noon. There's the glory of the golden hour, the fiery setting of the sun, the gloaming just before twilight, the cool reflections of the moon and the twinkling of the stars. And then there are the the human-made varieties of light. There's the Gemutlich glow of the fireside, obviously, but then there's the sterile glare of the modern office. There's the jolly twinkle of string lights, the electrifying brightness of the Friday night lights. There's the cacophony of the concert lights and the glorious order of the church candles. And you've probably noticed that the varieties of light affect you in various ways. I submit, for instance, That it is impossible to have a romantic, fluorescently lit dinner. For that, you need candles, or at least warm pools of light. On the other hand, I'm glad that when I had an appendectomy, it wasn't done by candlelight, right? (laughs) We can think of all the lights in the Bible. The strange, floating, glowing cauldron in Abraham's sleep. The blinding brightness of Saul's noonday vision. The prismatic heavenly splendor which visionaries like Isaiah and Ezekiel and John struggle to speak out in the language of gemstones and lights within lights. God knew what he was doing when he created this cosmos. From the moment that God said, let there be light, he had all of this in mind and more. He didn't hang one giant fluorescent to cast all creation in an ugly glow. He made it all. including the ways that the varieties of light would capture and provoke the vast experience of human emotion 
of human experience. But why? Why all these whites? Why all these lights? What's it supposed to mean? John helps us in his brilliant prologue to his gospel. You know it. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the the light of men. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. See, the triune God creates the world to reveal himself in love. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are utterly sufficient, utterly glorious, utterly satisfied in one another, and yet in love they wish to share their glory. And so God, Father, Son, and Spirit create a theater of glory to share with the beloved creation. And it's telling that the very first thing that God speaks into existence, the first let there be, is light. Light in all of its vast varieties, is meant to reveal to us the splendor, the glory, the purity, the warm love, and the electric thrill of God. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all, John will write later. Epiphany has been a season of light. Every Epiphany evening, the church prays to Jesus that nations should come to your light. And kings to the brightness of your rising. Every Epiphany Sunday morning, Anglicans are reminded right at the start, by God, that I will set you as a light among the nations, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. If you remember back to Christmas Eve, right? Cast your mind back then. That first flickering candle flame of Christmas Eve was passed from wick to wick. And the glow spreads, it, it extends, it, it goes beyond the boundaries of this, of this church building and extends to the, to the far reaches of the earth so that even in 2024 in Birmingham, Alabama, we have heard the name of the king of the world, Jesus Christ. It's like you, you picture those, um, those satellite images of the world and like the lights being used at night and you see this dark globe that's illumined. That's, that's the gospel that we proclaim in Epiphany, the, the light spreading throughout the dark world, the dark world illumined. And here at the end of Epiphany, the last Sunday, we read and we remember the great shining moment of our Lord Jesus' light. Mark 9, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. You know when you're a child and you're handed a flashlight, that thing that you always do? Who am I kidding? I do this every time that I hold a flashlight, even as an adult. You take the flashlight, you put it under your hand, you turn it on, what happens? Your flesh begins to glow, right? You you feel like an alien for a second. And you know, obviously, even as a child, that it's not your hand that's glowing, it's the light that's shining and reflecting and refracting through, right? Donald Beck, operates some very sophisticated medical imaging machines, right? They use magnets and radiation to produce detailed images of our insides to bring what's invisible and dark to a kind of light. But those images of brains and veins and organs are not showing us that we're actually glowing inside. No offense, right? My brain is not actually a kaleidoscope of colors sparking into a glow anytime I think real hard. It's the same kind of thing In Exodus 33 and 34, when Moses asks to see Yahweh's glory, you remember this scene? What does Yahweh say to him? 
You can't see my glory and live. No one can abide the irradiating presence of God's holiness, God's incomparable grandeur and glory. We need the refractions of creation. That's why God creates light, so that we can actually behold, at least a little bit, the glory of God. And so Yahweh does what? He shows Moses his back, and even that is enough to make Moses' face shine in a way that terrifies the people, so much so that he has to wear a veil over his face. But we know Moses' face shines not because Moses is glorious, but because God is glorious. And here on the high mountain of the transfiguration, this is no flashlight trick. This is not a CT scan. This is not even the shining face because you encountered Yahweh moment. Jesus is transfigured before them. A stunning word. This isn't an aesthetic change. It's not a momentary makeover. It's not even a change in appearance. What happens on this mount where Jesus is transfigured is a revelation of what is always true about Jesus and what is only true about Jesus, that he is God, God Almighty, incarnate in human flesh. The preacher of Hebrews declares that the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. The the Apostle John, he's not being literary when he calls Jesus the light of the world. He doesn't put on his black turtleneck and say, hmm, yes, what metaphor shall I deploy here? No, metaphors exist because God created things to reveal other things. That's why metaphors work, why language works. It's God's design. So Jesus is light. The same Jesus who was the word spoken, let there be light, is also the one and and, and always the light who is the life of men, the life who is the light of men. It's the same Jesus at creation here on transfiguration who is present here among us now being worshipped. If we've been following along in Mark's gospel, you know sort of the, the whole first half is people coming to terms with who is this Jesus guy? What's going on? What should we think of him? What do we make of him? We need the, and, and we have a revelation here. Yes, we've been fo- if we've been following along, Jesus teaches with authority, right? Yes, Jesus can perform miracles. He can cast out demons. Yes, he can heal the sick. Yes, even with Peter, we can say Jesus is the Messiah. But here on the mountaintop, Jesus reveals something further. He's God. He is Yahweh, veiled in flesh, so that everyone who encounters him doesn't just melt like they're at the end of Indiana Jones. And it makes sense that seeing this vision of Christ's divine glory, that Peter starts babbling. And Mark says that the disciples were terrified. Because remember, no one can see Yahweh and live. And yet here they are, seeing Yahweh and living. They get to see the light of Jesus' divinity shining through the very flesh that he took on for our sake. But it's not just Jesus' face that's transfigured. Mark goes on, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Now, the actual garments of Jesus at that moment were probably as dirty as you might expect them to be. When was the last time you got to the end of a hike, especially a hike through hills and mountains, and you arrived at the top looking fresh and smelling clean, right? He's just wearing garments, but these two are transfigured. It's not only the face of Jesus, not only his skin shining with divinity, even his clothing radiates. 
And the bright cleanness, the intense whiteness of Jesus' clothing reveals not only that he is personally, divinely glorious, but reveals his holiness, his purity, his spotless lambness, if you will. But it's not just the color that Mark draws our attention to. If it were just the color, Mark could have said, they were brighter than the brightest white you've ever seen. He specifically contrasts the brightness of Jesus' clothing with the brightest cleaning that human invention can conjure, right? Brighter than anyone on earth could bleach them. The strongest bleach, the highest dry cleaner could not get close. You're not going to find transfiguration white on a paint chip in Home Depot, right? It's not possible. So why does he make this comparison to to the bleaching of clothes? We've already seen in Mark's gospel the hem of Jesus' robe is a live wire of his divine power. If I touch just the hem of his robe, I'll be made well, the woman with the flow of blood believed. And her faith was not in vain. In Mark 7, wherever Jesus went, in villages, cities, and countryside, they laid the sick in marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it were made well. It is Jesus himself, it is God himself who purifies and heals and makes clean whatever he comes into contact with. And just as we are not the source of our own light, so we are not and cannot be the source of our own righteousness, our own holiness, our own cleansing, or our own cleanness. And yet this does not stop us from trying We would so often be the cleaners of our own souls. We apply all kinds of soaps and additives and bleaches which we think will bring us to righteousness and holiness and purity. If I eat organic, if I stick to the diet, if I get to the gym more regularly or go on that daily walk, if I discipline my time and just stop wasting so much of it, if I pray more, fast longer, strain harder, if I cross my exegetical T's and dot my theological I's, if I could just stop sinning, or maybe if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, maybe if I had prophetic powers, if I understood all mysteries and all knowledge, then I'll be clean. Cleaning up your act will not make you clean, not in the way that matters. And so I ask you this morning, what are you scrubbing with? What's the soap that you hope will cleanse your mind, your body, your soul? Mark is telling us that only contact with the Lord of glory will cleanse you. Only union with Jesus the Christ will make you righteous. And it will surely make you righteous. In Revelation, the vision of heavenly worship, we see the saints putting on brilliant white robes. You, too, will put on shining glory, but we can't miss it. How do the saints get these robes? How are they made a brilliant white? The robes are not a reward for a life well lived. They're not gradually bleached by our virtuous actions like each act of obedience is a tide pin that cleans one more spot. No, the saints receive their robes. And they shine white because they've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. That's one of those images that always sticks with me, the bleaching power of the lamb's blood. It's the opposite of what you'd expect. It would certainly make a rather unexpected paint chip, right? Lamb's blood white. 
But then God's glory and God's love do come in an entirely unexpected way. Because the shining Son of Man, on top of the Mount of Transfiguration, must come down the mountain. And when he does so, he will suffer. He will be rejected by his people. He will die a shameful death. The light of the world will hang on a cross as the whole world darkens at noonday. But here's the thing. This too is his glory. The thing which reveals Jesus as truly God, the act which most radiantly reveals God's utter uniqueness is his willingness to suffer and die for the life of the world. For you, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, not only on the Mount of Transfiguration, but also on the hill of Calvary. Not only when his face shines with divinity, but when it's barely visible for the blood and the sweat and the tears. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give us the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ crucified. Now perhaps this morning, you've already been granted a glimpse of Christ's transfiguration glory. Perhaps God has once again, as he does, illumined your mind or your body, your soul, to a sense of his boundless goodness, his limitless authority, his unspeakable beauty, his eternal love for you. But perhaps this morning, you can't see the light. You've heard the eyewitness report, and it's just not doing anything for you. Perhaps you're glad for Peter, for James, for John. You're glad for those who seek to bask in the presence of God on a daily basis. But you think you must be one of those disciples down the mountain. The ones who didn't get to see Jesus in his divine glory. Maybe you're even worried that you're a Judas. Sojourning among these sincere disciples until you finally grow too cowardly to stay. And it's clear enough this morning what we should do if and when we see the light of Jesus' glory. The light of Christ leads us to worship him as our Lord, and we welcome the glorying cloud of the Spirit's sure presence within us, and we hear with joyful ears the Father's warm affirmation, do you see my beloved Son? Do you see him? I love you as I love him. In fact, he's the best way that I could show you my love for you. But what should we do this morning if we can't see the light? I have two ideas. The first is this. Notice the light that you can see. The transfigured glory of Christ Jesus, the shining of his face and his raiment. It's the radiance of God's glory. It happened. It's real. We have eyewitness testimony, and Peter and James and John will not shut up about it for the rest of their lives. They shouldn't. It's a pledge that they saw, the the radiance of Jesus' face. It's a promise that the source of light and life and goodness and grace will never be extinguished. God's light is inconquerable. Remember, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it and cannot overcome it. Here's a classic illustration, but a good one. Are there any spelunkers in the house of the Lord this morning? Any cave divers, cave tourers. I've not done it myself. But you know that when you go down in a tour of a cave, or you you go down into a cave, down into the heart of the rock, and when you get down to the heart of the rock, you extinguish every light. 
and you're plunged into total darkness. Can't see your face in front of your hand, darkness. Darkness you can feel like a presence, oppressive darkness. But what does it take to banish even that darkness? Single match. At the lighting of a single match, the darkness is dispelled. The darkness has not overcome it. In Psalm 139, the psalmist prays this, If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I go down into the depths of the grave, you're there. If I take to the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light around me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Sometimes we're granted a glimpse of Christ's shining glory, but more often we have only the vast varieties of his light, the match flames, the pale light of a foggy morning. And he's present there too. Everywhere there is literal light, there is an infallible sign of God's presence. God doesn't have like a bat signal. He just made light. That's his sign. That's why Christians for centuries have lit candles when they pray. It's why this sanctus candle always burns in this sanctuary, day and night. Every single night, as we, you and me, who make up this parish, rest at ease in our homes or weep until dawn. Every single night, this candle burns here in this sanctuary where we worship God together. And candles aren't magic. But whenever we light a candle, we have a visual promise from God. As surely as this candle flame burns and more, I can be sure of God's presence with me. It's the case with every variety of light that we encounter in life. From the rising of the sun to its setting. From the calm flickering of the fireside to yes, even as much as it pains my aesthetic heart to say it. Even in the clinical buzzing of fluorescent bees and fluorescent tubes. All truth is God's truth. All light is God's light. So wherever you are, whichever variety of light is in your sight, notice it. And in noticing it, know that God is present with you. That he will never leave you nor forsake you. And if your eyes are tired or your vision fails you, I leave you also with the Father's final word. This is my son, my beloved. Listen to him. Often we're desperate for the rushing wind, the mighty earthquake, the roaring fire of God's presence. We want the dazzling vision. And we should. You're made for glory. You were made to behold the glory of the Lord. But remember, like Elijah needed to, God is still present in the whispering voice. He's present in his word. As Peter will say it from our New Testament reading, God's word is a lamp shining in a dark place. And we should attend to God's word, God's lamp, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in our hearts. Where there's even a glimmer of light, there is the presence of our glorious God. Where there is even a whisper of his word, there is the presence of our glorious God. I don't know where each of you find yourself this morning. 
Maybe you are on the luminous mountain with Peter, James, and John. Maybe you are in the valley of the shadows. But brothers and sisters, we are drawing nearer each day to the sure time when the dawn from on high shall break upon us to shine on all who dwell in darkness and in the shadow of death, the dawn that will guide our feet into the way of peace. And so we press on through the shadowy valleys, through the bleak dark nights with God always present with us, always at our side. We press on to the time when the sun will no more be our light by day and we won't need the brightness of the moon by night for the Lord himself will be our everlasting light and our God will be our glory. And even if we can't see it yet, if we can't see it in its fullness, we can know with confidence that it's coming and it's real and it's eternal. God's glory will be revealed because we listen to him. We've heard it faithfully reported. And because we can glimpse it, we can get glimpses of the sure and certain truth that glory does belong to the Father and glory does belong to the Son and glory does belong to the Spirit and the glory is God's from the beginning from the let there be light, and the glory is God's now, at this moment. And you can see it in every glimpse and glimmer of glory that you see in the world, the world that God is in the process of transfiguring, and that glory ever shall belong to the Father, and it shall belong to the Son, and it shall belong to the Spirit, and that glory will surely shine forth, and will fill our eyes, and will shine from our faces when we see our Savior face to face. Amen.